Sometimes you gotta cycle through all the languages to express how you feel on Viger, please. A heinous trip at Warp 5. My name is Joseph. I'm surrounded by small children coughing violently. I'm your co-host, Peter. Speaking of small children and, and perhaps entertainment that's directed at them, I, I understand you've been watching some Star Trek that I have never watched before recently. Yeah, so the big news, the only news really in Star Trek's world at all at this point. <clears throat> well, you know, I take that back. We just had a little intro you and I did discussing the Time Warner HBO uh, merger, right? Yeah, that certainly is a big deal. Yeah, that, that's being discussed. On further investigation, the the maybe we mentioned it briefly, but Les Moonviz on his way out gave a real sweetheart contract to Secret Hideout Bad Robot, um, giving Kurtzman and Co an ironclad grip on Star Trek. And from what I'm seeing right now, whatever these talks about the merger between Paramount and uh, Time Discovery or whatever they're calling themselves. WB Discovery. It looks like Star Trek is going to be left off the table because that contract is so poisonous and that IP is so fucked right now that basically nobody would want to touch it unless Kurtzman magically walks away from the table. Jesus Christ, like what would they do with it then? They wouldn't have a home. I don't know. But I mean, what has happened since Strange New World season three? You know, season two, you mean, right? Season. Mm, yeah, it's only been two seasons. Of so there's going to be season three coming out Um, since I'm sorry, Picard season three. Tons of hype about Terry Metalis, the, the God King coming in, saving Star Trek. No talk whatsoever of the legacy uh, show to come as, you know, the the further voyages of the Titan. Um, that Section 31 thing I haven't heard anything about. Haven't heard anything about their dumb Starfleet Academy. So that's all. It looks effectively dead in the water. They're not getting funding for it. He's got the rights for it. Whatever. Switch over to start talking about Star Trek Prodigy, which was a big flop. Right. Yeah, so uh, bad, thing- so bad. Paramount uh, and Paramount charged it off of Paramount Plus. Got rid of it. Season two was ready to go. They couldn't find a home for it. Uh, somehow it's found its way back over to Netflix, which is kind of where the postmodern Star Trek revival began because of the easy accessibility to TNG, DS9, and Voyager. It's interesting. I have a comment on that. I'll share when you're done with Lay your... it out now, man. Yeah. So it is interesting to reflect on where we started with this, which is a, there was a tremendous amount of renewed interest in reviving Star Trek because it was without a doubt, a huge pillar of the Netflix catalog on watch hours on users, uh, all of the Star Trek shows consistently did numbers on Netflix for years. And this gave Netflix the insight that they wanted more Star Trek. But of course, they to, to do that, you needed to make a deal with CBS Paramount so that they would make it. And this is what led us ultimately down the road of the discovery. Uh, discovery being made. And as we recall, the international streaming rights for discovery was held by who? Netflix. Netflix. So um, what a car door to slam your hand in (laughs) the monkey paw. (laughs) Like I want more Star Trek. Do you? Uh, So now here we are. We've, we've, we've gone from one streaming service to a million streaming service to a consolidation back into maybe there being only two or three streaming services. And what's happening? Star Trek is returning to, Quick shout out to fucking Amazon Prime that has the audacity. Did you see this shit? They're going to start plugging ads into Amazon Prime video unless you pay a $36 upcharge on your Prime membership. Get fucked. Are you serious? I love the boys. I'm pumped as fuck about Fallout 4. 
I will pirate the shit out of that before I watch a single fucking ad. I will let that Amazon Prime subscription sit there. I'll uninstall the app off Roku and I will watch pirated material that I have legal access to through my normal viewing channels before I sit there and let you give me a fucking ad for my ridiculous hundred whatever dollar uh, a year subscription thing I'm paying on that, which anyways, yeah, the, the weird cadence of things and Star Trek oddly being one of the tent post properties that I think really enticed these other companies to look and say, huh, look at that. Look, look at all those views on that stuff we made 20, 30 years ago. Why aren't we making money on that? Hey, let's take our ball and go back to our house and try to make our own streaming service. And we'll find out how that works out for us. Right. I mean, a million such stories, right? Why does Peacock exist? Because after Trek was gone, the most popular thing on Netflix was The Office and then Friends. You know, like Friends has always been a powerhouse. Friends has always brought Friends and Seinfeld has always brought great revenue to whatever uh, entity was holding its rights on it. The only thing I could tell you that was consistently playing TNG was like BBC. Right. And, and it was because the rights are cheap because it's because it's all syndicated It's super cheap to get the rights to TNG. Right. But that's always the one that I, I would see it playing on. Netflix having the accessibility of that's the entire catalog. You watch it whenever you want. You put it on when you're falling asleep. And that's what we've heard from a lot of our listeners with Voyager specifically. It's a smooth, mellow dialogue pattern in that show that was easy to fall asleep to. And you could just put it on as background noise. No big deal. So that's gone off into its own thing. Many other uh, big mainstay uh, properties left Netflix. Netflix was left having seen the writing on the wall with a lot of their own original stuff. We were just talking about this um, Rebel Moon, which mixed reviews. I'll give it a shot, right? I'll give it a shot. But uh, I mean, Netflix, Netflix original stuff, I think, is underrated. In, at least in some cases, the extraction movies, I think, are excellent action thrillers. I can't believe most people haven't seen them. They're like, they're right there. If you got Netflix description, go fucking watch them. They're good movies. Um, So like Rebel Moon, right? Like it's not costing me anymore. <laughs> Might as well go watch it. Give it a try. But now the prodigy son has returned <laughs> to yes. Netflix. Unhoused, banished from its own streaming service. Immediately created. in the top 10. Immediately in the top 10. And it's funny, too, because, I mean, I've had Paramount Plus in the past. I've got it now. I was never motivated to watch it before. But for some reason, man, the way that the children's profile on Netflix works, and I knew it was coming, and I knew that I wanted to take a look at it. But I'm already logged in with my kids' profile on the TV. I'm doing the dishes. I'm doing meal prep, whatever, on the weekends when I'm home alone with the kids. And if it's between Sunny Bunnies or whatever other fucking trash they want to watch, Bluey. that has like Bluey's amazing. Yeah, Bluey's actually great. Bluey is possibly the best thing on broadcast. Not even broadcast. I mean, it's behind a paywall. It's on Disney Channel, I guess. Blue is easily one of the top three shows in production right now. Um, it's universally beloved. It's good. And it taps a sitcom genre that is untouched in this day and age where there is a competent father who is respected by his children's and not a complete fucking moron. As opposed to goddamn Peppa Pig, which can die in a fire. Uh, th- this can be a separate podcast. <laughs> you got you got bones to pick about cartoon uh, yeah. parents. Well, listen, it's in my ears a lot, and that's what's bringing me to this, is if there's going to be trash on the TV, right, it might as well be something that I have a podcast about and that I can at least tangentially talk about. So I put it on while I'm doing the dishes. I can't even really hear the dialogue. I'm just basically watching the story, and all I really care about is what does this ship look like, right? What design language are they using? Show, show me a cool Star Trek ship. Show me a cool Starfleet ship. And it's going. Uh, Nickelodeon helped him with this thing. It's not awful. My kids kind of were watching it. It's not like they were glued to it. 
Uh-huh. Um, it might be a little too advanced for them, but for just bullshit on in the background that I don't care enough about that. I'm like telling the kids to hush and really try to like zoom in on and give it my full attention. Just background stuff going on. Uh, you know, the clone wars back when I didn't hate Dave Filoni before he betrayed us all. <laughs> before out Star Wars before we found out he couldn't direct humans. <laughs> <laughs> it was real bad with humans. Um, you know, Clone Wars, there was a, all the Sith episodes, great adult storytelling. And then you yeah. have like the Jedi Padawan, like toddler hours, you know, you get- uh, Obi-Wan versus uh, Maul in the Tatooine Desert. Possibly one of the best Star Trek, mo- Star Wars moments, rather, period. It was great. I and mean, there's tons of good stuff in Clone Wars. You just got to wade through all the Jedi Padawan like, you know, it'd be two to three episodes for kids. And then that real good, like, Sith feature. Asajj yeah, here's Chris. some war crime shit. <laughs> like, yeah. Oh, OK. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. So anyways, just stuff on in the background. It's it's pretty cool. And like you said, it's Netflix. I'm not paying anything extra for it. Netflix is on in my house a lot regardless. And it's weird that Netflix makes me receptive to watching this where Paramount Plus uh, I could never give a shit and then also while we're on animation i found out that there were two episodes of lower decks from season three i never ended up watching the last two season nine and i'm sorry episode nine and episode 10 which is very ironic because when we did our recap of lower decks i'm like jesus how did last season end and i didn't know because i never watched <laughs> yeah, that I didn't episode because i didn't watch any of it you didn't know because you didn't finish it there are two yeah. great episodes too uh I, lower decks lower decks season four was good enough that i might go back and watch season three Season three was watch solid. a sink second of it. I, I, I would. And it's funny, too, because you got two animated things. You got Prodigy, you got Lower Decks. Prodigy might end up. It's fine as a children's TV show. Lower Decks is just good to great Star Trek at time and uh, a, a fun cartoon along the way. So this this might not be a fun cartoon that we watched this week, but it was, in my opinion, good Star Trek. What? What was it, Peter? We're getting into season four, episode 11, Observer Effect. This guy came out January 21st, 2005, written by Judith Reeves Stevens and her, I'm assuming, husband, Garfield. Ooh, (laughs) It's a rough one. Come on. Come on, Mr. and Mrs. Stevens. Garfield Reeves Stevens, directed by Mike Viger. Uh, Peter, this has been long one of my personal favorite episodes of Star Trek. Uh, I do not claim it to be one of the best. I think that there are a number of episodes that have such incredible dramatic chops that um, they're undeniably uh, better described that way than this. But I've always enjoyed Observer Effect, and I probably personally rewatched this episode more than any other individual episode of, of Enterprise because I feel like it is in many ways a perfect encapsulation of what makes good Star Trek stories uh, is extremely economical. There are no guest stars. It relies entirely on your main cast. Some of which, so, some of which are playing basically multiple roles. It delivers a, a very um, Star Trek story while also just, you know, using like a sci-fi story template on top of it. And, uh, it, it it relies on your actors kind of just being able to be confident in delivering good performances. That's it. That's all this is episode is doing. There's no flash. There is no um, special effects. Um, there's nothing except drama. Well-delivered, well-crafted, well-directed drama. And it was interesting to rewatch it in context of our review of the entire series and our continued praise of season four. Um and this is once again just one of a standout episodes that I don't expect everyone to agree with me that this is just amazing, but I will I will stand for this one uh, as long as I live. It's funny you say all that because sitting down to watch this thing, my first line of notes on you know seeing the the little blurb there before I queued it up <clears throat> is that I was not at all excited to get into this thing. I had very low expectations. Um, I feel like this was a 
pretty accessible tropey Star Trek thing where it's the alien observers and the crew caught in a city shitty situation. I only took maybe eight or nine lines of notes in it, and it's because I was just into the episode, man. The pacing was well. Uh, There was no big badass moments. Uh, Nothing flashy going on, especially in the wake of the Tom Clancy trilogy we just watched, which had, you know, a lot of big space battles, running guns, some real uh, galaxy altering events, you know, like real political, like, oh, shit, you know, he just just hit him with the hotness, right? Flash kicked him. Damn, look look at that. This is just a a smooth narrative that's pretty even keel through the entire experience. I want to jump back to your criteria of why you thought this was a great episode. Off the top of my head, I think that you and I started praising low budget Trek on count pop tarts episode where Hoshi go. What the hell was that? The, Count Molestula um, was Exile that? was the name Exile. of the actual episode. Yeah. So that was right at the top of season three when the Zindi crisis kicks off. That was one of their first stops in the Delta yeah. expanse. First, first half dozen episodes, I think, is when that happens. Some real standout set pieces of high school drama club set building. Oh, yeah. The, the spoopy medieval castle that the guy's in. Yeah. Uninspired, uh, shall we say blatantly low budget and a lot of the Zindi chambers and stuff there. And that's where we really started zooming in and saying like, there can be good stories out there. Not that pop tarts was, was a great story, but like you can get some pretty solid ass star Trek off a shoestring budgetary constraints where we got to focus in this ongoing observation that we have had. And that's nothing we were able to really ever say on Voyager. Was it? No, I mean, we were too distracted through our run through Voyager. I think of its inconsistency in quality, um, the 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 poor writing, uh, particularly of Janeway herself. Um, you know, it's it's so long ago that I think sometimes we forget, like, we started with Voyager because the first three seasons, boy, there is just so much crap, right? And yeah. it, it doesn't really find its own identity until really kind of late in the run and it rewards you for being someone who invested yourself in the show, but um, at what cost, right? And even when we were done, even in the afterglow of what we felt was a pretty good last two seasons, we said, don't watch this. And really, unless you really like star Trek, right. Was our, was our ultimate takeaway, even though you, you were even quite generous, I think in your review of like, eh, most of the episodes were mad a good, you know, there's only only X bad, would I recommend this? Um, so you, know, we, I think we never really got into a discussion of budget because the show did actually feel like it had money. Voyager felt like there was a lot of the money. whole way through. There was a yeah. lot of bad CGI. <clears throat> there was a lot of planet hell cave sets. Yeah, but it never felt cheap for the most part. It felt like they always had a good budget for their episodes. I mean, aside from that garbage bag outfit in Alice. <laughs> Well, that wasn't so, you know, they I don't think that was cheap. That was a poor that was that was more indicative of Voyager's faults. Bad. Yeah, because it was just bad. Right. Like they had the new ship. They had the the guest star, you know, like that whole idea. Right. They had all theory. <laughs> they just mm-hmm. executed on it very poorly. They just put them in a garbage bag. Yeah, I think I, I said that probably dozens of times. What a great idea and what D minus execution this is real quick while we're talking about Voyager. And in the wake of the prodigy discussion, by the end of the second episode, I want to say they're on the ship, which I think is called like the protostar. Pro- look at you. Look at you, Joe. It's the only thing I know about the show that and the fact that Janeway's hologram is the main character. Janeway's hologram. She is a training program on this vessel to train cadets, which immediately struck me as ironic because of all of our discussions we had about Janeway's racism. I I don't know. Janeway's unwillingness to accept the doctor as a person. Right. 
even after she would reach the conclusion that it was time to, you know, consider him a person, she would immediately revert back to her previous save file uh, right up until like the last couple episodes of season seven. So I'm wondering Doctor author author might have been finally the like the last time she made the turn to say, yes, the doctor is a person and was like four episodes left or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm wondering if whoever is writing Prodigy is going to a recognizes the fact that it's highly ironic that now Janeway is a hologram of some sort. And if there's ever going to be a moment where like real Janeway encounters hologram Janeway and like is dismissive, belittling and shitty to the hologram, you know, to the horror of whatever this ragtag crew that has been assembled on the protostar. Probably not. It's a kid's show, right? Right. But uh, so Voyager always had the money. Enterprise does not have any of the money. No, they have no money whatsoever. This is definitely a product of having no fucking money. Two seasons of a lot of budget. Third season tight on a budget. Fourth season should not be happening. And Maddie Kono's pulling out gold and, and using stuff there. We have correctly coined the term bottle episode, right? Yes. And for those our, of you out our there, term is the best one. Yes, it's not an our term. It's just the term, the correct term. There's the incorrect term, which is that um, that fringe website. Uh, what TV tropes? Little, yeah. little, <laughs> whatever, whatever they have to say is wrong. Our in, our description of a bottle episode is right. And everyone that's listening to us should accept that. It's right on both counts, right? Uh, what mm-hmm. we've called a bottle episode, which is. Uh, Jesus, I've confused the two now. We've we've done this joke so many times. Uh, we called bottle episodes things that don't ultimately go anywhere, right? That there's no connective tissues outside of the... Correct. That it's contained within the bottle. Mm-hmm. Never to be mentioned again. Um, this, and I don't know because I haven't seen the rest of the season. What happens here apparently never has any further implications. Right. And it's because by the end, it appears as though the aliens have hand waved the memories out of everybody's head, but also bottle episode in that there is no guest stars. There's no new locations. We're using just yeah, this is a bottle answers. episode by, by the incorrect definition. Um, but you would also say it's a bottle episode by our, our very correct definition. It's the Omni bottle episode. Replacing, I think, perhaps Shuttle Pod One as the penultimate bottle episode. No, Shuttle Pod One gets referenced. It does. Yeah, this this uh, may be the true textbook bottle episode here, right? So we're going to pick up with uh, two guys we haven't seen in a while. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like a lot of this episode was also have... We done anything with Mayweather and Hoshi for the last season and a half? No. Gee, it'd be nice to have some fresh faces on this show. We but should gosh, probably we don't have, have them do things. We don't have any budget for a guest star. Oh, hey, who are these two people? What's what's this that fell underneath the table and got stuck behind the refrigerator? What is this? Oh my gosh! It's what's his name? Ant- Ant- Anthony Montgomery. Anthony Montgomery. <laughs> Where have you been, sir? <laughs> it's like someone finally went over to the producers and was like, listen, I know that Anthony's a really nice guy, but his agent has been nothing but ringing my phone off the hook. We need to make sure he's the focus of an episode. He's literally not had a shot at this since season two. Anthony, would you like to be in an episode of Star Trek Enterprise? Yes. Um, but I'm here every week. What do you mean? Do you, uh, no, no. We want to play. You're going to be <laughs> an alien. Just, not just tackling people. I mean, like acting. <laughs> You're going to be an alien. Oh, great. Do I get a cool costume? Uh, That sounds like money. No makeup. No costume. You know what? Just wear that thing you're already wearing. We'll, we'll figure something out. You got uh, Reed. You got Mayweather. And they're sitting at a table in the mess hall. And they're playing that analog old, old plain old 2D chess. No 3D chess here. And it's a pretty nice fake out intro too because they're sitting there talking. You've got no reason to think that there's anything weird going on other than the fact it's two characters that never hang out 
hanging out that are never on screen on screen. And it immediately becomes apparent that they are playing chess at far too high of a level. Something is up. Not so much a, a big stretch of the imagination for Reed, the wonder child who has developed shields, good phasers, good ship phasers. He does, in fact, say that what, the alien that is embodying Reed does say that Reed is the ship chess champion. So, you know, confirmed for nerd, but confirmed yeah, for we, unlikable. What we get is these two clearly not themselves and it being conveyed through dialogue very explicitly that they're currently being uh, the hosts of two other aliens that are using an opportunity to observe humanity deal with an issue that is evidently about to inflict, be inflicted upon them. That there's something with this planet that they're at. There's something wrong with it. There's something, an issue here. People die here. Uh, and whoever these aliens are, they would like to see how hu humans deal with it. And they're just having the conversation with each other right there in the middle of the mess hall with no OPSEC whatsoever. Something that I'm very, very happy actually comes back into play later, right? Like something that I'm, I'm glad the plot makes a point of talking about. This episode comes down. One of the biggest things I feel in it is a, a feeling of darkness in tone and lighting. And I've never really recognized lighting in enterprise as a driving force, but especially the scenes between these two, it's always in shady parts of the ship and it never feels sinister. It feels muted. It feels lonely. It feels contemplative. And the tone that they set in this scene here carries well through the entire episode. And I think that's really the soothing part in all of this is that <clears throat> it's not a last minute like, ah, the jig is up. The humans have found out the alien observers reveal themselves as like glowing balls and pass judgment or whatever. It's that these guys are boots on ground um, and they have uh, this binary relationship between the new guy, the old guy, the optimist, the pessimist, um, the essentially the humanitarian, the robot. And it's a difference that is maintained in the characterization of the two aliens, no matter who they are presently occupying. So at different times you have them in Reed and Mayweather, you have them in T'Pol and Phlox, you have them in Archer and, and T'Pol at one point, and then you have them later on in Trip and in Hoshi. And every time they're in someone else, you know which one's which, right? Like they, they make it very clear in the performances, which one is the kind of new guy optimist and which one is the kind of old hat pessimist. And that and really helps the, it helps the, the continuity of the episode tremendously because you're able to follow what the fuck is going on very easily. And I like that the pessimist old guy is usually in the more sour character, right? He's right. into Paul. Um, he's in Reed. The optimist is, you know, Mayweather. The optimist is Phlox. The optimist is Archer. The optimist is Trip. Not that Hoshi. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Hoshi is kind of a fatalist, though. Like, it makes sense for her to be. Yeah. The and also, apparently, like a heroin den, madam. That was Running floating card games and breaking supervisors arms with her Aikido skills. <laughs> Don't mess they, with the dragon lady. <laughs> they get into you. that where she broke the arm of her Starfleet sergeant supervisor or whatever. And I'm like, what kind of crazy tangent they just go off on? This is ridiculous. And then I remember her bicycle kicking flocks in the balls. And I was like, okay. <laughs> I get, yeah, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I, I watched her stomp the shit out of all of his dicks. So okay. let, let's, let's shortcut some of the plot so that we can kind of discuss what works about it. Cause I think that's, what's more interesting, right? Cause the plot is this planet that they were uh, investigating has on it a meteorite. And on that meteorite is a Silicon based virus, which 
is is a big big bad no no zone for for carbon based life, and it is not something that you want to be exposed to if you're carbon based life because you don't have an immune system that can properly deal with it. Um, if you prefer, you can think of this as um, the in Mass Effect, for example, where um, you have I think it's the um, Garrus. Yeah, G- Garrus is uh, the Turians and the uh, whatever Quarians. the Quarians. They're they have like different amino acid structures, and so like their whole physiology works differently than their all foods the other- poisoned uh, humans, and. It's also part of the reason why Corians have an inability to expose themselves uh, in environments with where like humans and all that sort of thing are present because they would be very susceptible to their diseases. Well, yeah. So um, much the same way you have silicon based uh, viruses that are just like super deadly to humans, super deadly to carbon based life period. And this place has seen a number of carbon based spacefaring races we hear the klingons and the cardassians yep. mentioned specifically haven't heard anything from the cardassians since uh death stop truck stop this is this is the first time their name has been mentioned ever in treks like you know in in continuity this is the mm-hmm. earliest of, the, of a reference for them somewhere out there benjamin maxwell shaking his fist cursing them oh yes uh you mean the warden of shawshank prison mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> such great casting I love it. Uh, one of okay, you know, someday we might be a TNG uh, podcast. That's so many years in our future, we won't contemplate it. But so these aliens are here because they want to observe these different carbon-based species, finding this thing, having this tragedy develop, and then det- seeing how it is they deal with it. And I think the reason, one of the many reasons I like this episode as much as I do, is that this finally starts to color in a key um, conceit of enterprise and Star Trek. And it's like, why are humans special? What is it about humans? Why are they the, the, the sort of main characters of the galaxy? What, you know, what, what about them is different than everyone else. And I feel like this episode answers that question by allowing the Organians to observe them and comment on how they're different. And it kind of like gives you that sort of light bulb moment of like, Oh, that's why humans are the kind of species that are empathetic and self-sacrificing and have like hold like uh, other centered moral principles, which is not apparently common in, in the rest of the galaxy, which is an interesting take because for a couple reasons. One, it is um, feels so unrealistic as we look at the world today that our defining feature as a, a defining unique feature could be compassion. And for all the things we've <laughs> joked yeah. and said, like, oh, you know, the most uh, ridiculous sci-fi part of Star Trek is that, you know, everyone on Earth getting behind a, a singular government and yeah. uh, surrendering all personal freedom to... To push a space commie. Obviously, like Alex Jones was smothered to death with a pillow at some point. If that was ever going to happen. The Vulcans got him. The Vulcans got him. Vulcans just like beamed him right into space. Like, mm. Uh, But, you know, the Vulcans have fingered it. And and it's Mass Effect, which, again, is spiritually just Star Trek. Uh, Humans always are the antithesis of the elves slash Vulcans, which is a relatively young species that uh, is short lived in its years. But, you know, the star that burns twice as bright burns half as long and that they're making leaps and bounds. They're moving faster than anybody else has covering ground and technology and pushing uh, the limits of the world around them to a degree that makes other more elder races uncomfortable. Right. Uh, and with that always comes worries about war. And that gets mentioned in this too, that not that long ago, you know, earth was nuking itself and pushing itself to the brink of annihilation. Same as the Vulcans jumping back to the, um, the Tom Clancy trilogy. Uh, so for the 
defining feature that really saves the enterprise crew's ass here to be um, unbridled compassion for mankind, as well as, I think, to a certain degree, infecting other races with a similar level of compassion, because Phlox's Denoblian um, nature gets called out several times that he is not part of the experiment, yet right. he is critical to what's happening there. Um, and what was one of the best parts of the episode for me, it's uh, Hoshi, you know, they get back, they've been diagnosed. It starts with a bad cough, which I'm very familiar with right now because it's holiday season, so my kids are just sick as shit from all the family events. Uh, they're in their quarantine area, and there's a lot of cool character building. This would have been a great season one or season two episode. Yeah, and, and this is, I guess, the um, key part of this is it really could have fit anywhere within Enterprise's run. It didn't need to be in season four. I guess it shouldn't have been in season three. That's it. Like, it wouldn't have belonged there. But it would have been fantastic in season one because of the Hoshi and Trip like actually like talking to each other, which mm -hmm. I, I guess they rarely do, you know, I so it like makes sense stuff about them and, and Hoshi specifically, but uh trip brings up. This is the only of the second time I think over the entire Star Trek course where they've gone into their back catalog of paramount things. They're allowed to talk about the first being event horizon. This one, calls out, you know, my own of my favorite author is Michael Crichton. And he asks Hoshi, you ever see uh, the Andromeda strain? Which have you? I have not. Oh, man. Ed, that's right in this, like, level of, like, chill, synthy, 70s, goofy sci-fi that is arguably bad, but still just a great watch. It, I, I don't know. It, it's its own thing. But uh, in... Andromeda strain, there's a carbon-based virus called wildfire that causes complete hell and, and some real issues in this uh, government facility. But uh, it's a great reference because in the Andromeda strain, the U.S. Uh, government is conducting an exercise called Project Scoop, where it's sending up satellites to uh, skim the outer atmosphere and bring material back down for observation. And that's really the crux of what's happening here. It's a little bit in reverse, but there is an experiment taking place where a stationary observation point is bringing um, subjects in to observe and comment. And, uh, you know, I think in the TNG, was it the Barkley episode where he plugs his brain into the holodeck and becomes like the smartest man ever? Yes. The ultimate ending of that episode is that it wasn't Barkley that smart at all. It was some other alien that overclocked his brain with the intention of bringing Enterprise to the fourth dimension or whatever the fuck it was so they could have a conversation to make first contact that way. I think this story does a much better job in its execution, again, because you've got this constant narration and commentary between these two as they watch their experiment unfold. And it's really yeah. a brutal experiment. As you've said, you know, you've got this abandoned planet that has killed hundreds of people. It might as well be the fucking planet chicken people retrovirus or whatever. Right. Right. Yeah. And at no point has anybody ever given a shit to put down a buoy that says, Hey, stay the fuck away. <laughs> like humans, are the first ones to come up with that idea apparently, but yeah, um, you, you've got a couple key narrative focuses. One is, just plain old Hoshi and trip kind of getting to know each other. These are two characters that haven't spent a lot of time to eat with each other. Haven't had a lot of dialogue with each other. So sure. Yeah. They're swapping stories about their backgrounds. Um, you know, trip used to take everything apart. Hoshi beat up her superiors, but turns out they needed her linguistic genius more than they needed to punish her, which like makes a lot of sense. Perfect. And also it's Archer specifically scouting her for that. Yeah. Give me that throwaway line and say, you know, of course, Archer couldn't stay away. My and of course, I mean, friend, I was about to say, like, does does the survival of Archer trip and Hoshi in this episode really kind of the crux of it is that Archer was trying to save his ex-girlfriend. So he took his, you know, EV suit off to effectively do that. 
And he, he probably wouldn't have done that for like Ensign Rivers, but he would have done it for her. I mean, like just put another fucking log on the fire of like, they just needed to actually have that as a plot point. It just did so much without ever doing it. But, um, and then you have the, the aliens, like you said, that they, they inhabit different crew members, at different times. Um, and then you have the rest of the crew who's trying to problem solve, right? This is a great flocks episode. Uh, it's great for flocks in one. He's just good at being the doctor. He's good at trying to problem solve. He's, you know, he's doing his thing that his character is supposed to be good at, but two, he's very clearly changed from the kind of person he was earlier in the show. It's like when you finally kind of start to see the level of like concern that he has for his crewmates that he's really trying to like solve this problem. Um, it's not this kind of dispassionate Denoblian medicine that it was before. It's, you know, he's, he's trying to get these two cured. And when he actually has his confrontation with the two aliens and he dresses them down, I think it's like one of his best moments in the show. I loved all of that. Um, I love that he becomes aware because they get sloppy. Yeah. So, uh, he notices that they should be completely fucking, uh, you know, down on horse tranquilizers and they're just having to chit chat. Hoshi gets in a fever dream and, you know, exploits one of the main Starfleet weaknesses, which is any panel can be hacked to the detriment of the entire ship. I I did like the idea that Hoshi is just a math genius because what is language if not, you know, code. Sure. And I mean, we've already established that in the uh, Zindi Cypher episode where she's getting the firing keys for the Death Star. Goes off, almost gets everybody else on the ship sick. Trip brings her back in. They say, listen, you guys got to tranquilize yourself. And Trip's like, I don't know if I want to do that because I don't think I'm going to wake back up. Uh, They get tranked up on the bridge. Uh, the the guys inhabiting Hayes and Reed start kind of getting into moral debate over what if what they're doing is just Hayes. And they're like, Hayes, if only Hayes. <laughs> Hayes and Reed. You didn't Reed even get like, Mayweather. it's not Hayes and Mayweather. It's Hayes and Reed. Yeah. Those two only hang out when they're assaulting each other. Um, and then the Mayweather, the quote unquote, nice scientist is like, well, I know a place where we can go talk in private. The the hot bed of attention for the whole ship. Let's go take over those guys that are sick and dying. And then Phlox is walking by a monitor is like, how are these guys standing up? I'm going to start running scans. Oh my God, this is crazy off. And then like these dudes with their metagaming powers are like, someone's, someone's observing us. We're going to go up there as a archer into Paul and start busting this guy's balls. I like that like they don't hide it from him and he just immediately is able to like clue himself in. And that's what it is. Like they they the way they just talk uh, as if he knows what's going on already. And he's like doesn't even question just it all just clicks. And you're like, this is a smart dude. Not only does he understand what's going on, but he is not surprised. He sees what the whole point of this is. And it disgusts him. Yeah, Uh, he makes a impassioned plea that they can fix things that they should help this and that they kind of address him differently. Well, you know, again, it's bad guy inhabiting Reed, who is now inhabiting to Paul. Is like, look, you're not even part of these calculations like this is a human thing. You don't factor in like uh, and, you know, basically talking to him the way that you would talk to a person you're about to kill. They're not going to kill him. They're going to mind wipe him. So they're free to say as they please. And it kind of like frees to I, I, flocks to do the same. Like, cause he, he straight like says, I'm like, no wonder you change our memories because although your behavior is appalling, abhorrent, Ab- abhorrent. That's right. Like abhorrent, like sick burns coming out of flocks. Like, yeah, I guess you would have to change your memories of what the fuck you're up to. Because if, if there's, there's no justifying what you're doing, obviously, this is sick. This is monstrous. Star Trek. I've seen a lot of space mangalas in you, sir. You are a real space mangala. Uh, so but, real standout episode for him in yeah. terms of compassion. Um, I like that yet again. Uh, Kill it with radiation is his go to. This is now the third time that like lethal doses of radiation has been 
Yeah, and you beat the Borg with it once. Beat the Borg with it. And there was another one. They they really hit someone up heavy with uh, radiation. Uh, great episode for him. Really good episode for... Uh, what's Reed's real name? Dominic Keating. Keating. And further reinforces the point that it's bad casting to put this guy in the role of a military dude because sticking him in the role of a um stuffy scientist yeah a a a a, uh, a callous scientist works perfect all the shit we said about make this guy a science division dude who's got a hair up his ass because DePaul took his job and that's what you're getting here he plays callous and kind of condescending perfectly. He works as a scientist, especially a, a, a grizzled guy who has seen everything. These are very long lived creatures. I want to say he's been doing this like 800 years or something. Correct. Um, the way like some of his lines in there, it's like, I think Mayweather asks, hey, do you think our hosts are going to die? Uh, you know, quite possibly. Someone always dies. Sometimes it's it's just the infected. Sometimes it's the whole crew, but someone always dies. And it's not like, you know, twirling his mustache and and sneering. It's not joking. Uh, there's a sad quality what he's saying, but it's, it's still detached. It's cold. And it's effective. I would have loved to see this guy in any role they could have given him other than tactical guy. And I think he really showcases some great talent through this thing. Um, also a great Archer episode. Um, two spots stuck out for me. One early on, you know, Flox has a pretty dire diagnosis after they determine it's a silicon based virus and he has to go tell trip that right. Like he doesn't, his trips, his best friend, right? Like that was really emphasized in this episode. Trip is his best friend. And he, you know, he, he has to like, he has this moment right before he talks to him where he's got to like gather his energy, gather his strength, you know, uses the intercom trip is there trip figures out things are bad after he says it's Silicon based. He doesn't have to tell him you're in dire danger here. He knows Archer tries to like give him, feed him some hope and you start to see the tears well up right here, you know? as he's fighting back the emotion and is telling him like, we're going to do everything we can to save you. And then the payoff to that is at the, you know, near the end when these guys inhabit the then deceased bodies of trip. And he's just watched his ex-girlfriend die. He's just watched his best friend die. He's emotionally compromised. They rise up. Um, and you know, he, he has to then pivot into basically giving these two a speech that is going to convince them to fix things. Right? Like, okay, you're telling me what you are. I'm accepting that because I've been in space long enough to accept that fucky nonsense is everywhere. Okay. You're, you're, you're in them. You're using them as, as, as uh, vessels to observe. This puppets, issue. Yeah. Here, I got to lay it on, right? Like, I have to do, I have to roll 20 on this diplomacy check, right? I've got to convince you that you need to intercede. You need to resurrect my 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 friends and crewmates and learn that actually the way to observe us is to fucking talk to us like normal people, right? And that speech he gives is perfect. It's really probably the best archer as a diplomat bridging the gap moment we've gotten on the show so far why is that is it because scott bakula has spent a lot of time with these other actors and it's easy to talk about other characters that you have uh, physical interactions with on a weekly basis than it is to talk about the the civilization of the week that you're tasked with averting disaster for i mean i think that's correct but do you have another theory <laughs> like I don't know. I mean, this is a I think, side that's, I think that's dead on. Correct. I think you just nailed it. 
And it's funny, too, because, again, Scott Bakula is an old hand at sci-fi at this point. And literally, you know, this dude cut his teeth in a TV show where every episode, every week, he was in a radically different situation. And the only constant character that he could have an emotional connection with was Al. So, uh, you know, you grab people, you pull them into sci-fi and say, all right, um, in this episode, you're there's a. Uh, an asteroid hurtling towards planet Gloplorp, and uh, you need to convince the, the 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 space Texans to use their tractor beam to divert it. And uh, you know the Gloplorp guys, they're got uh, their garbage bags with sprinkles on them, and it looks ridiculous. But now you need to have deep emotional investment on these people. Patrick Stewart could pull that off pretty easy on a regular basis. I don't know why it's never really clicked in a lot of these Enterprise episodes, uh, but this is a Archer that Archer was great season three. Archer's been good in season four. This Archer stands out as. It's not emotional. Maybe it is emotional. He there is there's something going on with the portrayal of Archer that we're getting here that you just don't ever see. And I don't know how to put my finger on it, but it's potent. It is with the way he says, ask us like when, when they say, well, how else would we learn anything about humanity? And he just says, ask us. It feels like he rehearsed yeah. this, these scenes heavily. Yeah. And, and well, like you said, like it's easier for him to get into it. Why his best friend and his ex-girlfriend are dead, right? Like he's emotional. You know, these are two actors he works with a lot. Like they can practice, you know, they have the opportunity. That's what I think it might be Uh, a scene in front of a window where you have to watch your best friend die and tell him, hey, you're condemned to death. That's that's easy. Anybody can fathom that, you know, Mm -hmm. it's not a big ask about saving the trash brag sprinkle aliens from a from an asteroid. You have to go tell, uh, you know, your daughter she's got cancer and and it's not going to be okay. That's easy stuff to work yourself up over. Uh, the speech at the end about, hey, here's strange body snatcher people, and they should talk to us like we're people instead of just standing back and watching us walk into a fucking mouse trap and die. That's a little uh, harder to, to grab the brass ring on, but maybe. And I couldn't tell you because the memory alpha is anemic as fuck on this one. But maybe it was easy to get uh, Hoshi. I'm sorry. Uh, gosh, Linda Park. Linda, Linda Park. Park. Yeah. And uh, trip together and say, hey, uh, you want to run through these lines? We got a lot of downtime. This is a simple ass episode and they're busy filming bridge scenes right now. C- can we run through this a few times? Or, hey, does someone want to come over my house? Or maybe I'm just going to practice these lines more with my. It's just it, 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 that's what it boils down. Or I think it boils down to is it feels like Scott Bakula rehearsed this heavily and was able to bring, um, you know, a, a haymaker into the scene. I, I think certainly he's a pro actor. This is a great example of like what he can bring to a role, why you probably cast him to begin with. I think though, the other half of this is just who are these two weirdos that wrote this, right? Like we've just got different talent doing the writing now on this show. Um, and you know, we've got, uh, the, the, the writing team that did this one did the forge. Great observer effect. Good United spoiler alert. That's great. Divergence spoiler alert. That's great. Terra prime spoiler alert. That might be the best episode of enterprise. Like these are just good writers who are writing too. So here, there you go. You've got an actor who knew always had it in him, and now that's being matched by people who are giving him the material he needs to be able to deliver a great performance. Do you think it's anywhere, uh, brand Braga and, uh, <laughs> Rick Berman are watching dailies on this stuff and just being like, man, <laughs> <laughs> we suck, dude. We, <laughs> like, <what the> fuck? <laughs> boy, did we mishandle this one? Who knew? Yeah, who, who knew, knew? While we're over there pumping out, fucking space westerns and whatever other goddamn nonsense we were wasting our time with that we could have been doing these things 
I mean, that that's what sucks. Not to derail us too hard off of the episode itself, but Peter, there's only 10 episodes of Enterprise left. Which is crazy. I'm yeah. looking at this now. I mean, episode 11, and this is a short season. Like, Yeah, 22 total. One of them is, you know, uh, a very much hated finale. So really, you're only talking about 21 episodes that are for the actual season. Two of those were the Nazi adventures. So it's really 19, you know, and here we are, right? Like we're on 11. uh, So you really only have another 10 to go before you get to the, to Terra prime is 21. So yeah, this, this is, uh, it's, it's a shame it took this long to get here, but boy, it is good to be here. I thought the ending on this episode was kind of flimsy. You get the impassioned speech from Archer. They cut away. Everybody's back alive. Everything's honky dory. Archer's parting words to the aliens were, if you want to get to know us, experience us, uh, you know, show compassion. Yeah, you experience compassion by showing it, right? Like, that's what he's asking is. You are wondering why I took my EV suit off to try and help my crew members. And you're not going to know unless you actually do what I did, which is try to show compassion and save people. Maybe that's that's the bridge that's missing there is that uh, they mention, hey, we've been out of our corporeal forms for so long. We couldn't tell the difference between being tranquilized and sleeping. Maybe they could have, you know, you've strayed too far. You've forgotten what it's like to be one of us. I mean, there's that, that, is, that, that, that piece is there, right? Like that piece is there in the episode. Right. Archer doesn't have that piece, but we know as the audience it's there. And I think that that's why it's effective when he says, well, why don't you just actually show compassion then? Like <laughs> maybe you had uh, Mayweather's character been given him that confirmation out. It, it was just a little jarring. And as good of a speech as it was, there wasn't like that, the key turning the lock and hearing that click. It just, it was there and like, Oh great. Everything's cool. Hey, drop a po- probe and we're out of here before we're done. I want to talk real quick about Archer's decision to pull off his EV suit and essentially get himself terminally sick in the hope that he would be able to save his, uh, his friends. Do you feel that that was at all out of character or something that you would not have seen? It, obviously, it worked great in this episode because he it, it was the ultimate sacrifice. And that was basically what pushes these aliens over the edge into like, I'm sorry, the good, the nice guy alien and being like, OK, these people definitely are different. Do you think? Do you think that was a side of Archer that only exists in this episode? Or do you think that that? could have happened in other episodes. He's certainly been suicidal before, but su- suicidal under compassionate circumstances. I think that the archer willing to potentially uh, expose himself to m- a guaranteed death in order to save his most trusted and closest friends and crew members is an archer that has emerged as a consequence of season three, right? Like I think this is the archer that really was struggling climbing mountains, you know, in home. I think he, 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 he doesn't want them to die. Right. Like, I feel like that that's what that is. It's like, I, I care about these people too much. I got to take my gloves off to help save their lives. And that's what I'm going to do. Clever writing too that the, the tools to administer the medicine were inoperable with gloves on. It was Phlox about to take his gloves off and it's Archer saying ship needs a doctor more than needs a captain right now. Let me be your hands. Yeah, uh, that's a good point. <clears throat> season one, Archer season two, Archer, probably not. I want to die. I feel guilty. Uh, I'm trying maybe to actively kill myself yeah, I get through I, the I, I war. Need repentance. I need to self. He's gonna. He's on a self-sacrificing trip, right? Like I lost my connection to who I was as an optimist. I need to reconnect with my own humanity. 
uh, I'm on a journey. And also, too, this is a. I guess I want to watch. Post. Tom Clancy trilogy. Ciroc lived in my brain, Archer. And see. How that like, at what points can we look back to that life changing event of having the founder of modern Vulcan cohabitating a body with you? Like what what things he does where it's like a pre mind meld archer might not have done that. Uh, But yeah, it's good. The whole episode's good. It's certainly not the most exciting episode, but uh, for all the reasons you listed earlier. I think this guy, uh, this works well, although it is silly that, you know, they have this medical emergency. They got to move the guys into sick band. They don't just transport them. And I was really kind of at a certain point expecting the two things to come out of this episode that never did. Uh, one was going to be the invention of three dimensional chess. <laughs> <laughs> two, I was under the my money was on humans finding the cure to it and it becoming what would evolve to be the biofilters for the transporters. An interesting thought too, but yeah. And it is the Organians are like such a deep pull too from like the TOS canon. Um, don't know if maybe that was the right call or not, but they make it work in a way that I don't mind the fact that it's just a true bottle in every sense of the word. It's a perfect archetype quality Star Trek episode. It's something if you want to tell, you know, like here, here's a Star Trek episode that's just extremely well acted, well written and well directed. And it gives you a real sense of what the show is like when it's at its best. I'd give them this one. I stand by it. Speaking of only 20 some episode, I'm sorry, only uh, 10 or so episodes to go. Uh, we're going to be moving into season four, episode 12. Next, this is going to be Mike Sussman and Andre Baramis. What's it called? David Striden. This is going to be Babel One. Um, Sussman used to write with Phyllis Strong, right? I think so, yeah. Interesting. She is nowhere near any of this. And it makes me wonder if between the two of them, if uh, Sussman was a stronger writer. No, no, no. Uh, Phyllis Strong, I think, is a co-producer at this point yeah she might still be involved with the show she's may not be writing writing credits yeah enterprise journeys to Babel with a tellerite ambassador on board for peace talks within dorians when a distress call from shran is received well listen (laughs) don't threaten me with a good time (laughs) any episode with shran is a episode i'll be happy to have on my television um I assume this is going to be a good one. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh don't think there's a bad episode left. I think like <laughs> I think they're all good from this point forward. Let me jump back real quick before we wrap this up. This prodigy thing on Netflix, because now uh, I'm looking at Memory Alpha and I see all this on the popular pages down there. Uh, Star Trek prodigies up in there. This thing is hitting top 10 on Netflix, right? And this was an absolutely dead. This thing fucking landed like a turd when it came out. And I'm not saying it's good. I'm not saying it's great. I'm saying empirically, uh, this thing bombed so fucking hard that CBS offloaded it. That, that they, they finished season two and they, they were unwilling to commit to showing it because they didn't want that financial burden on it. This thing blowing up, because of whatever the Netflix effect is, that's enough to draw me into it. It's got to be perking up some ears over at CBS Paramount. And these guys being like, what if we parade some of this other shit, this other new truck we've done? What if it wasn't on the streaming platform that's just not working? What kind of viewership numbers could we be getting on Strange New Worlds or Lower Deck or God forbid Discovery if we were Can back I- on the mothership? Can I offer a hope, a dream that I would like this story to end with? Netflix purchase Star Trek outright. It's theirs. Boy, howdy. They just take the whole thing. And it's like, it's ours. We own the catalog. We own the rights. 
It's ours. They pay assassins to cut off Alex Kurtzman's head and leave it. Whatever. In. They got the money actually probably to give Alex Kurtzman his walking papers, right? Like there's got to be some termination clause in there. It's like they pay an enormous amount of money and he gets to fuck off forever. Especially too. If you've and got a just, consolidation of HBO and Paramount and that huge movie catalog working against them and they leave behind Star Trek because of it's so fucking tainted by Kurtzman and Netflix can say, if anybody knows what the power of Star Trek is, it's us. We've got all this fucking we've got all of this telemetry from all the viewership uh, spying that we do. We know what people want. Give us the fucking rights and we will make a badass space show. We will make our expanse or, you know, whatever other popular sci fi IPs are out there that realistically should be competing. Terry Gonzalez, you want to fucking do legacy or whatever it's called? Do it. Do it. Here's that Netflix money to do it. I don't know. Interesting stuff, man. That's a that's quite the that'll be quite the Christmas miracle. We'll see what 2024 holds. <laughs> Pessimist me and says about it'll just an otherwise be a... dreary year, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm. Uh, let's see. You know, 23 overall wasn't bad. No, 23 Not... was was fine. I'm saying 24. Like, I'm just saying. Aside from Dune Part Two, I don't think we have too much to look forward to. But that Fallout show. Yeah, Fallout looks like it's good too. <laughs> Fallout show, more boys. We'll see, man. No, I'll, totally unrelated. Uh, my youngest cousin, one of my youngest cousins, was was relating his experience and recently watching The Sopranos, which mm. he just also discovered. Nice. Um, it is. It, it apparently it's become quite a Zoomer trend. Did you know you were trendy and watching and watching hey, the Sopranos about Zoomer now? trends? The the apparently peanuts slash snoopy is real hot right now and if there's anything that is a clear indication of a trash generation it is gravitating towards snoopy and fucking phoenix which is one of those throwaway ips in my opinion all right i have no comment on that because that christmas special has always been something close to my heart much like this episode of star trek and we'll see you again next week <laughs>